Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hey, I'm Christian Sager. And uh, this week on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we're talking about ancient text, ancient books, ancient tomes of knowledge, kind of a, in a way, kind of a spinoff from our earlier Glamour episode. Yeah, this is very connected, and it also made me, it, not only did it make me think of that, but also like any fiction that surrounds like occult texts or old ancient texts that have hidden meanings or mm-hmm. secrets hidden away in them, this is for you. Yeah, because we're talking about lost texts. We're talking about texts that have been written over, that have been r- erased, uh, essentially the, the data recovery of uh, of text uh, dating back centuries or even thousands of years. Yeah, and very specifically, these are called palimpsests, and I may pronounce that wrong throughout the podcast, but I'm I think that's how you say it. <laughs> palimpsests. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so these are essentially books that were made with they were made from the hides of sheep or cattle. Uh, and, and as such, you could scrape off the ink of them and reuse the whole thing all over again to write a whole new book on top of it. Yeah, the word itself comes from, uh, from the Greek, um, palimpsest, uh, meaning scraped or rubbed again. Um, although the, uh, the membranes of the palimpsests, uh, that we're looking at here, uh, were, were not usually scrubbed additional times. Right. Uh, but, but sometimes it just depends on how much use it was getting. It, a lot of it really comes down to just the, the value and the scarcity of of, uh, of parchment. Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole sort of, uh, I guess, intellectual economy surrounding these things about mm-hmm. what is important contextually at the time, what is not, what what's valued the most. You know, we'll see with a lot of these examples that at the time that they were being erased, religion was more valuable than, say, math. Right. So math documents were erased. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's also helpful to think about it in in the modern way that we use uh, uh, our various uh, media and uh, and use it to record what's important to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I instantly think about VHS tapes uh, because okay, I used yeah. them so much in my my youth. Particularly, like the, I imagine a lot of people can relate on this. Where you have those really old tapes, they you had them for years and years, and you had what um, you know six hours extended play on there. And so the, the life of one of those tapes, um, a lot of it's essentially lost because you can't retrieve any information from it. Yeah. But it might start off by say, oh, there's a movie coming on on TNT. I want to tape it. So I'm going to leave leave it on. I'm going to start recording. So you end up with two hours of some B movie you want to see, yeah. followed by another two-hour movie that you're not really that interested in, and then like late night infomercials, right? Right. And then you had to time it exactly right, you know, mm-hmm. if you wanted to record over the second movie so that you could use the tape to its fullest extent or something like that. I remember always trying to like reverse and and time it just perfectly. You know, it's kind of like making a mixtape in a way with those yeah. sets. Yeah, I mean, if you got fancy, you you'd try and edit out the commercials. <laughs> right. And uh and then every time you would have like you would add new media cuz I particularly remember it's like I'd have a tape that would start with taping some movie, and then I'm taping episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000 on there. Mm-hmm. Then I'm taping like individual wrestling matches from late 1990s uh, uh, pro wrestling TV shows. And so the connective tissue between these things will be this like distorted sea of of weird fragments. Right? Yeah, you get that effect. I which I believe uh, our producer Tyler used to great effect in the Monster Science uh, series that you guys did. Yeah. If, if anybody ha- hasn't seen that. It's a, a video series that we did here at How Stuff Works, where 
Robert explains the science behind your favorite monsters. But Tyler used a really cool effect by making it look like that VHS thing where it's blending just between the two. Or maybe there's like maybe there's that one little blip of white static just between uh, between the two recordings. You know, it also reminds me of a bit from uh, comedian uh, Kumail Nanjani. Yeah. Have you heard this bit? I have. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Kumail's, actually, and uh, his podcasts, The Indoor Kids and The X-Files Files. Yeah, he does that bit about how when he... <laughs> When he was a kid, he used to like take like uh, like like rated G family movies mm-hmm. and record porno uh, reels in the middle of them. Right? Yeah, so like his he had a find them. yeah, like he had a friend who had uh, you know through the you know, sort of the underground uh, connections there in, in Pakistan had acquired these adult films. Yeah, and then he would take the scenes safely in the middle of uh, you know Jurassic like the Park. Lion King or something. Yeah, like Lion that, King, right? Jurassic, the kind of takes yeah. that you would innocently have yeah. at that age. Uh, but he would use them to to store this forbidden data. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if anyone hasn't heard that, check out his um, his uh, comedy albums because he he has a whole bit about having one of those tapes yeah. and and then the power going off and it being stuck in the family VCR. Yeah, I think that album is called Beta Mail. Yeah, I believe really good stuff. Highly yeah. recommend it. Well, and of course, podcasts themselves are palimpsests in a way, right? Like That's true. Every time you download a new episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind to your phone or your tablet or whatever, you've got to make more room on the hard drive so you delete an older episode, whether it's, you know, of course you're not deleting one of our episodes. Oh, yeah. You're keeping all the whole archive <laughs> there. But, uh, but you know, that I end up doing that quite a bit where I go, okay, which one of these things do I want to keep? Which one do, can I get rid of, you know, that I've listened to and I'm satisfied with? Uh, and so in a way they sound, sort of work like that, although I wonder if there's going to be a period of time like 200, 300 years in the future where people are able to take our phones and sort of like <laughs> look at the hard drives and peel back the layers to find these lost podcasts. Yeah, I mean, data recovery with computers is obviously more complex than, uh, than, than VHS. You, you have it like a deleted, um, photo card. Uh, for a phone, uh, and it seems like you've lost everything, but that data can sometimes be recovered. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and it's, it's certainly more difficult than, you know, well, although this sounds pretty difficult, like pouring acid oh, yes. on cattle skins or just scraping it with a knife, uh, and in a lot of cases, you know, present day cases that we'll talk about, they're using some pretty high technology like infrared imaging and things like that to yeah. be able to see the ink under all the layers. But I like the mention of the podcast example because because uh, some of the same energies are going to be in play when we talk about why particular texts were lost, why they were written over, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of it comes down to, you know, what am I into right now? Maybe I'm not into uh, Mark Maron's podcast as much right now, so I'm going <laughs> to delete it. And then maybe I come back to it later. Maybe I'm, uh, I, I've already listened to, to this episode. I'm not interested in this new, um, you know, ideas episode, so I'm just going to go ahead and trash that now. Yeah. Yeah, it comes down to a scarcity of resources, right? Yeah. So, like in in the time that these were being made, it, it was a scarcity of uh, parchment, in particular, and uh, and and also paper. They just ba- were barely using paper at all. And then there was also the fluctuation of intellectual activity between these scholars. Yeah, this was really interesting. Um, it's uh, worth noting that Palimpsest uh, seemed to suggest, yeah, not only the scarcity of paper, but also. Uh, the hunger for knowledge and the demand for new texts, a demand that uh, that even wealthy centers of learning had difficulty keeping up with. And this is backed up by the fact that the number of palimpsests appears to increase in greater ratio during periods of intense intellectual activity, 
more so than it does during, did during periods of economic decline. So there was more, mm-hmm. more erasure and overwriting of text during just the because of, age yeah, just when there was more exciting stuff. So yeah. it's kind of like, it's a golden age of podcasts. There's so many podcasts. Right. So we're, it, it has to do more with the, what's available to us rather than just how much space is yeah, on our in phone. the future, they're just going to find episodes of Serial and then they'll, they'll peel them back and they'll find <laughs> our episodes underneath them. That's right. Just a few years from now, only Serial exists. That's the only one. Yeah. <laughs> All podcasts will be about, uh, uh investigations into murders. <laughs> so we can basically, um, discuss the reasons for erasure under three categories. First of all, obsolescence. So a text is erased and something else is written on top of it because, uh, well, maybe it's it's legal or it's liturgical in nature and it's just no longer relevant. You mm-hmm. know, it's like having a, an old football game on a VHS tape. You know, it's like you've already seen that game. It's not current. Wasn't a particularly great game anyway. Why should I keep it? Sure. Right. Yeah. Or it's an older translation. Yeah. In some of these cases, the scholars that were scraping the palimpsest, you know, it it wasn't just that they thought, okay, this is unimportant. They mm-hmm. also thought, oh, maybe we actually already have copies of this somewhere else, right? Yeah. Uh, and as we'll learn, those copies either ended up getting destroyed or lost in their own way. Yeah. Other times, uh, it's an older translation. There's a better version of that book. Why would you keep the old one? Uh, the text is in a foreign or a, just a lost language, so... This text is just taking up space on the on the the bookshelf. Yeah. In the in the you know why should I bother keeping it? I can put something more valuable in there. Um, or it's uh, it's an unfamiliar script. It's particularly difficult to read. It's not a usable text. Or uh, it's largely damaged and no longer useful as a, a tome of knowledge. And then also literary text plays a, a, a big role here. Uh, so just as pagan myths often mingle with Christian beliefs, so do to many uh, pagan classics exist buried beneath Christian texts. And there are kind of two ways of looking at that, right? Like one is to say that it's kind of a war on belief, right? That it's, yeah. it's Christianity erasing, like literally erasing and overriding older systems. Yeah, it's that old, uh, what the adage goes, uh, the, the, to the victors go history or, yeah. or history is written by the winners. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And in that sense, they sort of won the philosophical war at the time. So they were able to take the, information as it was and literally rewrite it. Yeah, and you can kind of see it as, uh, you can kind of look at it from more of a nasty perspective uh, mm-hmm. versus more just sort of a the, the nature of what is popular and what is interesting. It's kind of almost right. like gentrification, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's a, um, there, yeah, I think there, there's something interesting going on, especially when you consider the things that were being erased in some of these examples, mm-hmm. like the fact that we were erasing Archimedes' mathematical theories shows what the culture valued at the time. Yeah. It's interesting to think, you know, too, that we're living in an, an age where a book could disappear. Like, we're we're right. living in a phenomenal period now where it's increasingly hard for particularly a popular text to vanish from the face of the earth. Yeah, do you think that could happen now? Like, so let's say, I'm trying to think of an enormously popular text that we've all read 50 shades of gray okay yeah all right i've not read it but let's pretend i have okay 50 shades of gray how do we it, it gets completely wiped off the face of the planet so we've got to destroy all the physical copies mm-hmm. we've got to destroy the electronic copies that are out there now because of ebooks and then what else? Well, um, I instantly turned to Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. You'd have to go after oh, the right. individuals who have made it their their mission to, to memorize, memorize Fifty Shades of Grey and that, carry it around. That's actually quite a few people. <laughs> okay, okay. But then at that point, we're, we're looking at this dystopian future in which no one's ever heard of Fifty Shades of Grey. 
but they somehow find an old iPod that has, or sorry, no, an old Kindle, mm-hmm. uh, and they're able to somehow pull it up off of the, off the hard drive on that Kindle, and they find this lost text. Yeah, or you know, another way to think about it too is you may have lost Fifty Shades of Grey, but you have reviews that refer to it. You oh have yeah, some passages that have appeared from it. So you maybe have little bits and pieces of it, but the entire text itself is missing. That's sort of what's going on with some of these examples. They mm-hmm. knew that these books had existed previously, but they didn't have copies of them. So it's sort of like only the Amazon reviews were left online, but the book itself was not. Right. right? You know, I actually worked on a book kind of like this. Uh, it was uh, a previous life before I worked here at How Stuff Works, and I was doing graphic design on a book for Harvard University mm-hmm. about the Iliad. And they had found, this was not a palimpsest, by the way. They d- it had not been written over, but it was a very ancient copy of the Iliad uh, called the Venetus A. And it was, um, I believe, in Venice, Italy, that they found it. And in order to make it readable so that scholars could participate and kind of look at it and compare and contrast it to other copies, they had to scan it with like a, like a 3D, almost like a 3D printer scanner. It, it, uh, scanned the topography of the pages because the book is so old and delicate, mm-hmm. they couldn't move it. Okay. Yeah. You can't just throw it on the Xerox machine and nope. press down. Yeah. I mean, you, like moving a page in this book is like, you know, a, a big deal mm-hmm. because you could potentially destroy it. It's so brittle. Um, so just working on that project and how delicately they treated the text before they copied it. It really gave me kind of an impression as I was reading about these examples here of what these sort of archivist, archaeologists almost went through trying to dig up these old texts, which far more difficult because they're literally buried under other layers of ink. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, it, with this example you've mentioned, I mean, you, to touch the text is to risk destroying it. Absolutely. And then to reveal something just beneath the visible text is to destroy it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. They have to make a decision like what what is of more value, destroying this ancient text uh, so that we can have access to an even older one, or is it more valuable to hold on to this ancient text and maybe not know what's underneath it? Now, one of the... Uh the most notable early examples of palimpsest uh, recovery uh, comes uh, to us from uh, 19th century Italian priest and classical literature professor Angelo Mai. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he made his name rediscovering medieval palimpsests. Uh, and he wasn't the first to find one, but he was the first to really dig for them in earnest. So around 1819, he's uh, he's serving uh, as a Vatican librarian, and he comes across a, a copy of Augustine's Psalms. Um, you know, nothing, nothing particularly amazing about this book. But uh, underneath it, uh, when he starts uh, probing a little, um, he discovers that there is a copy of Cicero's De Republica. So how did he, like, how, how, how do you see this? This is the hard part for mm-hmm. me. Like, and I was looking for imagery of this, too. I'm having a hard time imagining the scenario. So he's looking at the parchment, mm-hmm. and he can see, like, maybe faint 
uh, traces of ink left over underneath the, the, the newer layer of ink? Yeah, basically. I mean, these texts are old, and uh, so they're decaying a little bit often, or they've been damaged uh, here and there. Sure. And sometimes that damage reveals uh, the text underneath. Okay. Other times, especially with my, like he knows those texts are out there. He knows those palimpsests are out there. So he's maybe actively scraping a little bit here and there, mm-hmm. uh, trying to just, just test the waters and see if there's something interesting beneath the surface. And in this case, he did. He found a lost text, uh, Cicero's De Republica, a controversial at the time dialogue on Roman politics. Uh, and this is a, this is fourth century Roman, uh, uh, empire stuff. So, all right, maybe this is a, a good analogy for how this works, sort of something that we can all picture. It, it's sort of like if you take a notepad and somebody's written on the first layer of paper on the notepad and mm-hmm. they rip that off and then you take a pencil to the yes. next layer underneath and you shade it in so you can see the impression left behind by what was written on top of it. Yes, but this is like a reverse version. Right. Of that. You're, of course, referring to the uh, the famous Jackie Treehorn yes, palimpsest. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of in my head was the Big Lebowski palimpsest. Yes. Uh, so that's yeah similar here. Instead of finding, uh, you know, a pornographic uh, doodle. Yeah, he finds a pivotal text uh, from the that, that details the rise of Julius Caesar, the eventual fall of the Roman Republic, the emergence of the Roman Empire, um, and this is a, a book that uh, the scholars knew had once existed because it's referenced in other works. You know, as uh, Zimberto Echo uh, points out, books speak of books as if they spoke among themselves. Uh, but anyway, it ends up getting lost centuries later, and we have only fragments. And even today, only uh, fragments of Book Four and Five in De Republica uh, are available to us. Uh, I get I couldn't find any clear argument as to why this book was lost. So yeah. maybe someone can fill us in on that. But um, as discussed earlier, we can chalk this up to to various re- reasons: to taste, to uh, to the scarcity of materials, etc. Possible political controversy too. Yeah, yeah, especially earlier maybe on. Maybe it was intentionally mm-hmm. destroyed. Yeah, maybe so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially given its, its uh, initial controversial nature. I wonder what Umberto Echo thinks about Amazon reviews <laughs> and their like importance in the, the philosophical history of human nature. I don't know. We'll it have sounds to have like him on the show and ask him. That, that would be fabulous. Yeah. I, it's the kind of thing that he would, he would I'm sure think he about. actually yeah. has opinions. Yeah, I'm being... Facetious, of mm-hmm. course, but I'm sure he actually has deep thoughts about yeah, this. Because that's the glorious thing about Echo. It's like yeah. he's interested in everything from uh, medieval poverty heresies to uh, um, superheroes, superheroes, yeah. um, adult cinema. I mean, yeah, you, uh, how to travel with a salmon, etc. Et mm-hmm. Okay, so the next really important example of a palimpsest is the modern restoration of Archimedes. And I mentioned this earlier, but it was a lost text. Uh, you know, Archimedes is one of the most celebrated mathematicians of his time, but also, you know, we all learn about him when we're in school, mm-hmm. or at least I guess we're supposed to. Uh, and, you know, he invented everything from the screw to catapults and other weapons. Yeah, I saw that you put a note here that he invented a death ray. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I've... Uh done any material on that. I think we referenced it in a podcast a while back, but there there, there are arguments that he may have devised a quote unquote death ray. Okay. It may have just I'm been imagining this like uh this like <laughs> like arcane system of mirrors like generating a laser beam off of uh the sun's heat or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like I think it was uh, essentially 
a means of uh, blinding or or messing with ships that were uh, okay. were at sea. Yeah. Well, and then of course he also estimated the value of pi, which is fairly important as yeah, well. Yeah, far more important than theoretical death rays. Well, yeah, yeah, you could argue that. Um, so you know he's got. Let, let, let's list a couple of his books here. Just you know, it's possible that uh, people out there have read them and just don't particularly recognize Archimedes' name. But he's got on the method of mechanical theorems, on floating bodies, and the measurement of the circle. That's probably the pi one. On the sphere and the cylinder, on spiral lines. They all there's a theme here on the mm-hmm. <laughs> on the equilibrium of planes. That's the other one. So important guy, right? Uh, however. There were only, throughout the dark ages of medieval history, three surviving works by Archimedes. Oh, wow. Uh, and one of these three was lost when Constantinople was sacked in 1204. And this particular palimpsest was made out of goat skin. So what ends up going on, this is the book that has the method of mechanical theorems, the first one I mentioned. So it's got... It describes how the law of levers works. It describes how to calculate a body's center of gravity. Uh, there's 14 pages in it that are rare commentaries by him on the logic of categorization. Now, so this stuff, you know, maybe just kind of sounds like I'm breezing through a list of bullet points here, but this is important stuff in the history of mathematics. Right. Um, there's 10 pages recording two unknown speeches by a guy named Hyperides. Hyperides who is an order from 4th century BCE. And two things that were in this book that I thought that were particularly unusual, apparently he had a unique way of describing infinity that mathematicians or his- historians had not seen before in a text like this. So mm-hmm. that was an important aspect of this. The other one was that there was a like a math puzzle that he made in there that was called Stomanchian. And I'd not heard of this before, but like... Archimedes was having some fun math games, you know. It was like his version of Candy Crush. All right, and he he had it in this uh, in this palimpsest. Unfortunately, uh, all that stuff got scraped off. What happened was Constantinople gets sacked. The book makes its way to Bethlehem. Nobody knows how, but a Greek priest there scraped and washed the pages so they could apply liturgical texts to it instead. Right, so it just is gone. For centuries, people mm-hmm. don't even know that it exists. Yeah, because they they were just like, oh, here's this old book, but I actually need the pages for these uh, liturgical materials that I need on a daily basis. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and this is its its story. The history of this palimpsest alone is fascinating. So, in 1906, this guy Johann Ludwig Heiberg finds it. Okay, very similar to the previous example with Angelo Mai. He's uh, looking through a b- bunch of palimps, or not palimpsests, parchments in a monastery. He's looking at prayers, and he realizes, oh, this, I think this is, you know, like this important work by Archimedes. So by hand, he transcribes everything. He couldn't read some of it, though, and he also, don't ask me why, completely ignored the diagrams, uh, which seems important to me, based mm-hmm. on my history with math books, but, you know, <laughs> which is limited. But anyways, he leaves that out. He's, he manages to photograph just a couple of pages, and then the book disappears again. Uh, it's right after World War I when it disappears, and they think that it was probably stolen from this monastery. Now, now who knows? Maybe these people just thought it was more prayers, or maybe they realized the importance of it. It was believed to be owned by a French family for most of the 20th century. And then in 1998, this thing just all of a sudden shows up at an auction in New York City. 
and an anonymous collector, I, I'm dying to know who this is, buys it for $2 million. Oh, wow. So what this reminds me of is it, we, we did an episode on this TV show just a couple of weeks ago, The Strain. Yes. And there's uh, this whole thing going on in The Strain where they're trying to get this ancient text at, a, at an auction, you know, and I don't I don't remember how much it goes for. But this is what I'm thinking of mm-hmm. while I'm reading about this is this vampire TV show. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what's going on in the show uh, yeah, as we're recording this. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to buy the text and the pet guys are trying to buy the text. And yeah. Everybody's also trying to just steal the text. That's what I imagine is going going on here there's all these factions at this new york auction and the anonymous collector manages to get it now it sounds like this anonymous collector is a pretty benevolent person because they lent it out to the walters museum for exhibition the book is in really bad shape it's burnt it's torn there's holes in all the pages it's got purple mold covering up certain sections of it so they have to be incredibly careful with this thing uh and and (laughs) To make it even more valuable, one of the previous owners, we, I, I don't know, for, I couldn't tell from the research whether this was the French family or somebody before it. They thought that it would make it more valuable if they covered it in gold leaf manuscripts. So they literally painted over this with this this gold leaf styling. There's a there's a, a sense of um, of like housing restoration in all of this too. <laughs> like imagining yeah. like someone saying, "All right, I want to restore this house, but look, somebody came in and they did this tacky restoration, mm-hmm. and I really want to get back to the, the you know the, the 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 heart of the building." Let me add some crown molding here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, the, it was so damaged. It took them four years just to slowly take the book apart and clean it. Like, they didn't even get to the actual, like, archiving of this material. It was just four years simply to make sure they didn't destroy this thing and put it into sort of readable condition. You know, in a way, it's it's kind of lucky for this text that it was that it vanished for that period of time. Because mm-hmm. uh, while it was missing, uh, Angelo Mai is... Essentially, kind of destroying a lot yeah, he's of text, throwing acid on yeah. books. <laughs> Which you know, from today's perspective, we look back and we say, you know, he's kind of rough with these mm-hmm. materials, and in some cases, he's destroying one ancient text to try and get it another. Yeah, but those methods were—I mean, it was kind of they were the best methods of the day, and we wouldn't have a more refined methods uh, in our modern time, and certainly more refined methods to, sh- to throw at this Archimedes uh, palimpsest if uh, if he had not done the work that yeah, he did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's probably a case to be made that, like, the technology that is available now allows us to uh, retain a certain amount of the original document's aura, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what What makes it it? However, I wonder if 150 years from now, there's going to be even more technology and they're going to look at us as being some kind of barbarians yeah. who are ripping this thing apart, you know. Um, but so what's interesting is the way that they, they've actually this team has used it and they called the book Archie for short <laughs> for Archimedes. Nice. Um, they imaged it with both ultraviolet light and X-rays from a particle accelerator. So, Whoa. you know, you just take one of those out. And just pop it into the old university scanner. Uh, it's obviously a very careful procedure. You know, every time they're, they're scanning it, they have to monitor the temperature and the humidity in the room around the book while they're scanning it. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something I remember from when I worked on that Venetus A project. I think they did a similar kind of thing. Always set the proton pack to the, the lowest possible. Right, level. yeah. Okay. And they can't cross the streams of the uh, particle accelerator and the x-ray. <laughs> the last thing 
the x-rays, this, this part was really cool. I read this, um, one, one of the people who worked on the project, I read sort of a feature by her where mm-hmm. she talked about what it was like, like a, a day in the life of working on this book. She said that the x-rays are able to read through that gold leaf painting. So that's why they used that. And what they do is they strike the ink that's on the page and they cause the elements inside the ink uh, to glow. And in this, in some cases they, they set it so that it'll make iron glow. In other cases they set it so it'll make calcium glow. And I think that that's based on, you know, how old the, the ink is. Right. So they know the composition of what of the ink that was probably used. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they're able to use, you know, these high tech scanners that detect this particular kind of fluorescence and they convert that into data which then is converted into particular kinds of images on the computer so this isn't just you know you're not just opening up photoshop and uh throwing it on the old uh, uh bed scanner right um you know so far we've talked about a lot of uh palimpsest from the christian world uh so i think it's it's uh, important to touch on some from uh, from outside of christian europe yeah, it's important to note here too that like the, the, those previous examples, they were f- within the Dark Ages. That's when they were sort of lost and written over because, like we mentioned earlier, religion had more importance to it than, say, science. Right. Uh, however, there are other examples. I don't want our audience to think that this is solely like an effect of Christianity. Right. Yeah, and one of the one of the examples from uh, the Islamic world. Uh, comes to us uh, from 1972. That's when it was discovered. Uh, uh, so it's 1972, and uh, uh, restoration is in process at the, the western wall of the Great Mosque in Sana'a, Yemen. Okay. okay? So they're restoring uh, here, and they discover a lost storeroom, and it's filled with manuscript fragments of the Quran. Uh, and uh, this highlights uh, another, you know, key reason for the survival of many religious texts, and sometimes their their hidden uh, palimpsests, mm-hmm. the relux- reluctance to destroy sacred books. Right. So right. these are copies of the Quran that have worn out from use, or they've, you know, or they've just degraded over time. But it's a it's a sacred text, so you can't just throw it out. You can't just uh, uh, burn it. So this is a. A place to put the damaged and ruined uh, Qurans. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, an oubliette for Qurans. I think you're the only person who's ever tried to fit those two words <laughs> into one sentence in the history of mankind. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the crazy thing here, the, where it gets interesting, is not just that they found a whole bunch of old Qurans. Yeah. Uh, but they found a Quran written over the Quran. Okay. 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 Which might not seem like a big deal at first because you've written over one text with the same text. Sure, but it's probably a different variation, right? Exactly. Um, the Palimpsest Quran was written just a few decades after the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632. And so here you have what experts uh, came to consider uh, one of the oldest Qurans in existence. Wow. And it's even a, a pre-canonical version of the Quran. So I just remember reading a story like three days ago uh, that seemed sort of controversial about how they had found some copy of the Quran that dated to before Muhammad and therefore like it called everything about Islam into question. Did you uh, see this? I did. And I was um, at, at the time I was reading some of the sources coming out about it and was and said, this looks really fascinating. I kind of want to wait until more. Yeah, it have the seemed to chime a little loosey goosey to me. And so mm-hmm. I didn't put a lot of stock into it. But now I'm kind of wondering if palimpsests were part of that, if 
Depending on how real the whole thing is, too. Yeah, I look forward to following uh, following that as uh, as more develops on it. But uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting when you get into these ancient texts. You're also you're essentially getting into earlier drafts of faith. Yeah, and yeah, uh, and that's certainly the case with the Sana uh, Quran. You're huh. seeing sort of a uh, you know a, an earlier draft of the Quran. Yeah, action. it's sort of like you're watching as like religion adapts to society's norms over the period of time, but you're able to see it in this one document. Yeah. Well, another one that I found was the Sarva Mula Granthus, which is uh, apparently attributed to be written by, and this is going to be a real tough one for me to pronounce, Sri Madhvachara. Sound about right? That sounds good. Uh, written somewhere in between 1238 and 1317. Um, now, the same team that I was talking about before that worked on that Archimedes palimpsest, mm-hmm. they worked on this one. It's a 700-year-old palm leaf manuscript, and essentially what this this you know document contains is the essence of Hindu philosophy. So pretty important. Uh, it's 36 works with commentaries that are written in Sanskrit on top of sacred Hindu scriptures. Mm-hmm. So um, each one of these leaves is 26 inches long and two inches wide, which seems like a very specific. When you think about that, like like trying to get that framed, that's going to be a custom job. There aren't a lot of like generic 26 inch by two inch uh, documents. Yeah, there's a documentary titled uh, "The Story of India" that uh, is excellent. It's available, I think, on various streaming sources. Yeah. And um, and th- there's a portion of that where they're looking at old texts and they actually are handling some of these palm leaf yeah. manuscripts. And it's really fascinating. Yeah, it just sounds uh, really neat, just the construction of it. It's also, so these leaves are bound together with braided cord. And they, what, what's ended up happening, because they're leaves and not like goat skin like these other examples that we talked about, is they've turned brown over time. Uh, and it makes it really difficult to read the Sanskrit writings that are on it. So this team spent six days imaging the document. They went to Udipi, India, and they used an infrared filter to manipulate the contrast that's b- between the ink and the leaf. So they're able to sort of, it's, it, and, and again, like I keep using the Photoshop example because this is what I know from my past history as a graphic designer, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like playing with the curves in Photoshop and like making it so that the ink rises up to the top and is readable with the, the leaf falling into the background. It just sounds really neat. One of the things, they decided that they needed to store this in a variety of different media so that this document wouldn't be lost again. So, of course, we've got, you know, electronic copies, books. But you know how they decided to store this thing so that it would really last? How? They made these things, they call them silicon wafer etchings. And they're apparently these, they take aluminum uh, metal and they etch the 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 words into it and they they use these because they're completely fireproof and waterproof so like building that they're in the library they're in could burn down or there could be a flood you can still recover these things eventually huh. it just sounded fascinating these stacks of these silicon wafers that have that's these what we need to put uh, fifty shades of gray on I to preserve wouldn't it, be yeah. surprised if they're already working on it I think after they got done with the Sarvamula Granthus this team moved on to fifty oh, shades okay. of gray that would make sense yeah. The next one we're going to look at is the Norvgorod Codex, um, a hyperpalimpsest, if you will. So back in 2000, archaeologists were working in Norvgorod, Russia, and they discovered an 11th century triptych of waxed limewood tablets. Uh, and so this is something that the owner of this would have used this over and over again, perhaps hundreds of times. Okay. Um, 
writing and rewriting and erasing. Imagine you apply different layers of wax. I believe so. Okay. Yeah. And uh so this was written uh, the, the the text here was written in old church uh Slavonic uh using the Cyrillic alphabet. Okay. And uh, it was important because it's the only medieval object of its type in the entire Slavonic world. Hmm. So the preserved text uh is um this is uh, se- Psalm 75 and 76, but that's just uh that's just the wax, okay? Sure. The wood underneath the wax, however, so, um, you know, the wax coating that you're writing in then underneath the wood, yeah. um, very much the Jackie Treehorn area where it's right. indent. Yeah, exactly. The wood underneath that wax preserves faint traces of an, of earlier lettering, psalms and an assortment of religious works. And taken together, these are many times longer than the main text. They include various uh, uh, texts, including a previously unknown Slavonic text reflecting a non-canonical uh, brand of orthodoxy. So, again, we see lost faiths, lost versions of faiths buried within these lost texts. You know, the whole thing that we're talking about here today really reminds me of of something that we're sort of lacking in today's society, which is this this physical contraption of the book right mm-hmm. like it used to be this this tome you know and it was made out of goat skin or wood covered in wax but it was a real piece of artistry and with the mass production of books that we have now don't get me wrong i love them i read all the time obviously but like uh, it can you imagine just owning one of those just having that on your shelf it's just there's something satisfying about that, about the work that was put into it. Yeah, it uh, you know it also makes me think a lot about tracked changes and versions within, uh, say, a WordPress document or a yeah. Microsoft Word document. Yeah, where essentially you have, uh, in, in some cases, even a um, a hyper palimpsest. You know, oh, especially yeah, absolutely. if it was because sometimes I'll write over, I'll use an old document as a template for a new document, just mm-hmm. so I don't. I'll save myself like five seconds of picking out the right font. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We do that here at work all the time. Mm-hmm. Like just this morning before we went in, I was working on a script with uh, Lauren Vogelbaum, who's on Forward Thinking, uh, and we were bounced. We were both in the document at the same time, and I said, "Oh, uh, I just accidentally deleted one of the comments. We're going to need to go back to a revision mm-hmm. from last night at eleven thirty p.m." <laughs> yeah, you know? uh, but it, we could only do that, even though we can both work on the thing at the same time. We could only really talk about the fact that I deleted something that was irretrievable unless we went back to an earlier version of it because we were sitting there right next to each other. Yeah, the collaborative nature of Google Docs is c- continues to intrigue me as, <laughs> as I'm working in these every week because yeah. it's just a different it's a different experience writing and reading than I was used to just a few years ago. Absolutely, and I am under the impression that both the people at Google and probably Microsoft and other major corporations that make these word processing programs, they're thinking about how we use it. I mean, uh, one of the things that's interesting about Google Docs is it'll it'll update continuously and you Mm -hmm. don't have to update it yourself. So all of a sudden yesterday, I was sitting there working on uh, a document for one of our upcoming episodes and I was like, oh, the formatting in this has completely changed and, and everything's different all of a sudden, you know. But it's because they're probably going through, you know, user feedback and getting a sense for how people use the software. Maybe that's kind of part of what's going on here, too, is that over time, the people working on wooden wax or palm leaves or whatever sort of learn from their audience, you know, these look cool, but they're not really practical. 
Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to think about a time in the future where instead of having like that original manuscript of mm-hmm. this famous or important uh, um, novel, instead what what would be submitted, uh, you know, for for care in a library would be the original Word document with full track changes, the original Google document with all the changes tracked. Yeah. I, um, you know, I worked in libraries before I was here mm-hmm. in the special collections and archives area of the library that I worked in. This is something that they were just starting to deal with oh, yeah. when I left, you know, like three or four years ago, maybe even a little further back than that, they're starting to figure out like, okay, we're starting to get archives from people that are digitized. What's the best way to collect these things? And exactly that, like, what do you do when you've got 10 versions of the same Word document? You know, you save them all because you're an archivist. You save everything that you can because who knows what uh, variations between those Word documents could be important down the road. Yeah, or you're like me, you realize you have like five to ten versions of a short story on your computer, uh, yeah. and you're not really sure offhand which one's the most yeah. recent. which is the one that you want to actually yeah. send on. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. So we've been talking about palimpsests as historical documents and as a way of digging into uh, our written past, uh, but they also serve as a, a tempting metaphor for the brain and even the soul. Yeah, absolutely. There's something to be said about these in terms of the way that we layer information and how we think about information. And I think this is important, something important to consider nowadays because we're really in an era where it feels like information is at its prime value, right? Like in our industry, it's referred to as content, Mm -hmm. right? So all this content is important. But what is going on with that content and the value of it Let's say like the value of a BuzzFeed article that is a bunch of photos of dogs, uh, cute looking dogs versus uh, this podcast. Yeah. So you've got to kind of weigh the two together. Right. Or uh, in, in, in what takes up, you know, uh, hard drive space. Yeah, and then also even in the human human mind, of course. You know, we all have that yeah. stuff that's in our head, some sort of trivia that is, uh, you know, Objectively useless, but uh, subjectively important to ourselves. Um, unless you have, right, unless you have like a perfect, what is a, the phrasing, eidetic memory? Yeah. Uh, then you have to sort of, over time, make decisions on what tidbits of uh, information you delete from your, your own personal hard drive. Yeah. Interestingly enough, one of the, one of the first people to really think about this and, and write about it uh, was Thomas de Quincey, uh, who most of you probably are familiar with. Uh, with him from his work, uh, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. I know that's the one I, uh, I have the most, uh, I've not read with. that. It's, it's cool. It's, I did a, I think I did a paper in college comparing that to Naked Lunch. Okay. Because, uh, you know, and essentially both of those you have uh, an author who is uh, ingesting a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of opium or, or mm-hmm. heroin and then writing about fantastical things. So Thomas de Quincey's writing about, I believe, like crocodiles and, okay. and, uh, and there's some parallels, loose parallels to be made between the two works. But he also, um, wrote, uh, The Palimpsest of the Human Brain, published in the 1845 book Suspiria de Profundis. And uh, I was—I have not—I have not read it uh, in full uh, previously, but I was—I uh, was looking at it uh, for this episode, and it has a really trolling intro that is 
not going to jive with modern listeners. Yeah. Uh, he says, you know, perhaps, masculine reader, better than I can tell you, uh, what is a palimpsest? Possibly you have one in your own library. But yet, for the sake of others who may not know or may have forgotten, suffer me to explain it here, lest any female reader who honors uh, these papers with her notice should tax me with. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a very particular way of... Uh, of strutting, I suppose. <laughs> but I'll I'll uh, I'll read us a se- selection here from this work that gets more to the heart of this, and I'll uh, I'll actually drop the uh, the accent for it. Oh, okay. What else than a natural and mighty palimpsest is the human brain? Such a palimpsest is my brain. Such a palimpsest, O oh reader, is yours. Everlasting layers of ideas, images, feelings have fallen upon your brain softly as light. Each secession has seemed to bury all that went before, and yet, in reality, not one has been extinguished. And if, in the vellum palimpsest, lying amongst the other diplomata of human archives or libraries, there is anything fantastic or which moves to laughter, as oftentimes there is in the grotesque collisions of the those successive themes, having no natural connection, which by pure accident have consecutively occupied the role, yet in our own heaven-created palimpsest, the deep memorial palimpsest of the brain, there are not and cannot be such incoherencies. Whew. This guy, he's, that's a mouthful. Yeah. I'm super, I'm impressed. So here's something that, that I know it, maybe this wasn't the, the point that De Quincey was going for, but mm-hmm. this is what just popped into my head while we were, while you were reading that is that, uh, memory is like palimpsests. And in the same way that we, you know how some people like go under hypnosis to recover lost memories? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or remember things from their childhood. And I know that there's some sort of disputes about whether or not that's real or not, right? Right. But that's sort of like the, that's psychology's version of, of, uh, scraping the wax off or scraping the, the goat skin layers off to try to find out what's underneath. It's interesting. We, the, the ways that we process information, whether it's in the material world or in our own minds or in culture, they're all they all sort of work in these layered systems. Yeah, indeed. Now, another writer who took the palimpsest as a, as a metaphor uh, is uh, Elizabeth uh, Barrett Browning, um, who wrote about it in her 1864 poem Aurora Lee. And uh, you know, this is actually more succinct and uh, and I think ultimately a little uh, a little more resonant for the uh, the modern listener, modern reader. She says. Let who says the soul's a clean white paper rather say a palimpsest, a prophet's holograph, defiled, erased, and covered by a monk's, the apocalypse by a longus, pouring on which obscene text we may discern perhaps some fair, fine trace of what was written once, some upstroke of an alpha and omega expressing the old scripture. So again, she's getting at the same thing that De Quincey's getting at, really, and that's that... Uh, that you know our our memory our our state mm-hmm. of being is uh is essentially a a a hyper palimpsest yeah and so like one of the things that this is making me think of too is that that they're referring to it fairly casually in these writings from you know the 1860s mm-hmm. so i know i know we talked about the etymology of the word palimpsest but i'm wondering how far back it goes into sort of 
vernacular, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, as we discussed, um, Al Amai was not the first to, to discover yeah. these. He just, he was the first to really make it his business to find a bunch of them. Uh, so I, the, the idea had been around for a while. Uh, like it mm. was, these books had degraded. Um, you know, to the point and, and to where people were noticing these lost texts. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, so to be honest, before we did this episode, I'd never even heard of them before. Yeah. yeah. Because each of us, you know, you can look at who you are now, you can look at who you were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And essentially that new version is is writ over the old. Right. And sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, if you're feeling, uh, if your your current self is feeling a little bit tired, a little bit worn through, then uh, maybe some hints of that older you end up uh, uh, coming uh, to the surface. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely doing that right now. Um, yeah. I just dug up a bunch of old journals that I wrote from maybe 15 years ago mm-hmm. um, because I was like, well, I wonder what I was thinking about then that I might be able to apply to things I'm working on now. Are they physical journals or yeah. live journals? Yeah, they're yeah. physical. So I've just been going through them with kind of a red pen. And then like in my current journal, there's a section that I'm I'm transcribing some of these things into and going, oh, yeah, that was an interesting idea I thought of when I was 19. Yeah. You know? At the time, it seemed profound. Now I'm like, mm, uh, okay, yeah, I'll consider that, but it, it might have some relevance to what I'm working on now. But yeah, that, that old version of me talking to present day me. So there you have it, Palimpsest. Uh, Palimpsest is in a historical uh, exploration. Palimpsest is a modern metaphor. Uh, Palimpsest in the old world, Palimpsest in the new. Yeah, so if you have any information about these that you want to share with us, I'd love to learn more about them. Uh, you know, outside of these few examples that we gave here, there wasn't a ton of research on these. I'm sure there's probably very niche areas of academia that, you know, for, for, for licensing reasons, we don't have access to the, the, the research. But uh, I'd love to learn more about this. So if you know something about these uh, that we neglected to mention today, let us know. Uh, you can contact us on social media where we're available on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And all of those uh, channels, we are Blow the Mind. That's right. And also head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership where you'll find all the podcast episodes, blogs, videos, and the landing page for this episode. We'll include links out to uh, related, related materials on StuffToBlowYourMind.com as well as some outside materials uh, that we may have referenced here. Uh, oh, and when you do reach out to us, I'd also love to know about any fictional palimpsest. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we're you know always reading, uh, uh, you know, tales and novels in which there's some sort of sacred old text. We even mentioned the one in the you know, currently on TV in The Strain. Right. But I do not recall offhand encountering, say, an evil palimpsest that's hidden in, with, you know, beneath the text of another book. Yeah, I have to admit that that was one of the first things that I thought of was like this. All right, I'm going to store this away. This could be a potentially great uh, plot device <laughs> where, uh, yeah, you, you discover some ancient hidden uh, grimoire like yeah. we had talked about in that previous Where some guy's like, uh, Necronomicon, I don't need the Necronomicon. <laughs> i got to use these pages for something more practical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they cover it over with, with three psalms. <laughs> well, yeah, if you uh, want to reach out to us directly and let us know about any of those things, uh, you can also email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 